Coming up on Chapters, I sit down for a conversation with Astrid Hendren. Astrid is an author who has written a book, Surviving Last a Lifetime, which chronicles her journey through medical trauma. We'll talk to Astrid about that medical trauma and important lessons learned along the way. All that and more coming up next on Chapters. Alexani, today we have a wonderful guest in studio with us, Astrid Hendren. She has written a book, Surviving Lasts a Lifetime, Mm -hmm. A Parent's Journey Through Medical Trauma, and I absolutely can't wait to get into a conversation. Welcome, Astrid. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to have you. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to it. Paul Aksani, we were talking before the show, and you have actually some things in common with Astrid. I do, I do. Um, I'm also an immigrant, and I know that she is as well. So I think, you know, we immediately have this awesome connection. Um, So I'm really looking forward to kind of learning her journey, because I think there will be a lot of similarities with mine as well. So I'm looking forward to asking her as many questions as I can to get to know her better. It's very interesting for me as someone that... um, uh, is not an immigrant mm-hmm, to the company, right. a first-generation immigrant, to learn about the experiences that both of you had. I've I had a chance to speak with you, Paul mm-hmm. and certainly I've gotten to know Astrid, and uh, and we're going to hear more about her story in just a minute. So it's uh, it's very, very interesting to it hear. Is. Um, the different perspectives. The challenges, yeah. exactly, exactly. So Astrid, again, welcome once again to the show. We're so Thank glad you. you're here. Uh, can you describe to us, Astrid, uh, your your early life experience and, and sure. what brought you here today? Sure. Um, so I'm just so thrilled that you're an immigrant as well. It's oh, all, it, I feel the same way. And, and when you live in the United States mm-hmm. and you meet other immigrants, it's always indeed an instant connection. It and is. It's actually the start of another book that I'm writing <laughs> um, where you, you meet people and they're just instantly uh, impressed mm-hmm. and, you know, have in, interest in your story. So to answer your question, um, I was born in the Netherlands. I have uh, two brothers. One is twin brother and one an older brother. And went to school, went to high school. And in high school, I was always really active as um, in student council. So I was at a high school with 1,100 students where I was the president of all the uh, students and ran a budget and I was part of national meetings to like bring new laws for students wow. to, the, to the school body. I was really a, a wonderful um, task and really great to be involved in. But the schooling I had gone through in high school was called Ateneum. Mm. And that's basically an advanced high school where it's, when you graduate from it, it's comparative to an associate's degree in the Netherlands, in, here in, in okay. the United States. So you're expected to either go to law school or medical school. Mm-hmm. Well, frankly, there aren't that many universities to choose from in the Netherlands. So I just wasn't sure what I was going to do. And my parents, who are wonderful people, my dad is a teacher, he really thought I should go to the local university so mm-hmm. I could stay at home and just be very <laughs> of course. you know, moderate. He didn't really push me too much. And uh, as a result, this was only a technical school that was close to our house, mm-hmm. which I was not in, at all interested in being an engineer. So... I said, why don't I go to the United States for a year? I didn't speak any English at the time. And going to med school and law school where all the classes are taught in English, it would have been really a great asset to have. So I decided to go to the States for a year and follow my older brother, who was a pilot in the Air Force in the United States. Mm. Wow. So I could easily kind of, you know, make contact with his family, uh, with, with the family of the woman he had been with, mm-hmm. who lived in Massachusetts. Wow. Oh, so wonderful. I arrived in September of 1984. And um, 
that was the beginning. So you were 19 years of age. You arrived in the U.S. and you expected, I read you expected to, to spend about a year here. I expected to be here for a year. Okay. And it was really great because um, I literally arrived with one suitcase, $100 in my pocket. I had right. paid for my own ticket. Back then that was $1,482 wow. Wow. <laughs> for a ticket. Wow. And I had saved it all. And I, to this day, do not understand, but I never cried a tear. I never was homesick. It was just like... You were ready. I was so ready. Yeah. And um, this, America has just been an, an incredible experience. You talk I'm about that a lot. I saw you interviewed recently on that. And, and I'm, it, it's very inspiring to hear um, in today's political climate, frankly, yeah. in any political client, climate, that uh, uh, we tend to get very cynical as Americans and forget what we have here. Yeah. And you describe very eloquently how grateful you are to be in this country. It, I am so grateful. And it, it's a really interesting I feel very blessed coming from the Netherlands because I can talk a lot about, you know, the socialist system that Americans are so uh, interested in. Uh, There are good sides and bad sides to it. But coming to the United States with, again, I had no college degree. I still don't have a college degree. And in America, you really, as a woman, on top of that, you can do anything you want. You just, I say this all the time, you get up the next morning and you can say, you know, today I think I'm going to start a new company (laughs) and I want to do this. And you, you can do anything you want without any restrictions. You can get money from the government. There are small business loans available. There, there, there's just there's seat funding. There's so the, the land of opportunity does exist. And, does. and in fact, you did just that. I just did that. Yeah. You did that. Did just that. You did. And, and it's incredible to me that you started a company for $1. $1. And when was that? Uh, so that would have been, so I was like 26. It was in the 90s. So it was the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I apologize. I'm just not putting the date uh, with it right now but it was all things Dutch and uh, I lived in DC at the time and um, you know the whole meal order um, movement started Mm -hmm. and I had been imprinting so I kind of liked putting art together and such and living here I knew a huge uh, Dutch community expatriates that really wanted their chocolate hail on their bread sure. and you know their their special goods like their saute sauce and things like that you must that relate to amazing. that yeah I'm, right? like, I'm getting hungry just listening well as an immigrant there are food products and books and music oh. yeah. so those products I felt needed to come here right. and I put a business plan together and I went to the Netherlands to the two main um, uh, basically the main stores that we shop in okay. one was a huge supermarket chain mm-hmm. and it was it back then uh, it was called Albert Heijn mm-hmm. and it's uh, the major holding company is uh, Ahold which is one of the biggest uh, supermarket chains in the United States now wow. and back then yeah. they agreed to give me their sole distributorship for products with their brand name to bring it overseas mm-hmm. and to sell it to Dutch nationals in the United States and another company agreed to the same thing and I literally came back and said to the town hall I would like to start a company I paid them one dollar they gave me the piece of paper and I just put a mail order catalog together and got going and, I, and I believe I heard you say that in a, in a course of a very short period of time you had 80,000 people on your mailing list yeah I did a marketing stunt that was really great really wow. really so I mean you, you're incredibly <laughs> industrial industrious person and today still are an entrepreneur yeah um, and and it's really uh, you were someone that came out of the gate fast to say the least mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this culture really does that yeah. because, again, it 
promotes, and this is sometimes a frustration in today's culture, because when I speak with other women and other um, entrepreneurs, you know, we understand that there is so much opportunity in the United States. There's nowhere in the world, mm -hmm. nowhere in Holland, sure. I would not be able to do sure. any of these things. Sure. So it's a, it's a privilege. It's, it's, it's amazing. I want to remind our listeners, we are listening to Astrid Hendren. Astrid is the author of Surviving Lasts a Lifetime, A Parent's Journey Through Medical Trauma. This book is available on astridhendren.com. Uh, it is also available on amazon.com. And I have both read the book, as I told you earlier, and listened to the book. Mm -hmm. And I must tell you, I would ask our listeners to do both. It is that powerful powerful of a story, and it has a different impact it does. Uh, when, when you read it So, and when you listen to it. Um, so in any event, Astrid, you are now at uh, a young 20-something uh, entrepreneur. Uh, you sold your company, uh, and you get married. I actually was married before I started All Things Dutch. Okay. So this was part of the complicated, and I'm sure some of your listeners will relate to this, because some of us are rescuing people out there. Mm -hmm. And I think when I met my uh, first husband, um, you know, at 19, right when I came off out of the airplane, really landed in the United States, he was my kind of only contact. And so very quickly, he had a very complicated childhood. And very quickly, I kind of took on the mission of saving him or rescuing him and married him for that reason. So it was definitely the wrong reason. And um, it, it took, took a lot away from the opportunity that I envisioned for myself. But uh, it also, I was very committed, and we were married for quite a long time and had two wonderful children. But so at age 21, I married an American okay. and therefore uh, stayed here. So you were, you were married and um, uh, young entrepreneur, uh, young children. You describe yourself as a type A personality. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you so can relate to that, Jim. Right? I, well, not really. <laughs> I've been told I'm a B plus and sometimes yeah, a C minus, but... Um, uh, depending on the day, but um, but I, I do understand, uh, in gonna, having gotten to know you, that uh, all the best qualities of a type A mm -hmm. person I can see in Astrid, and um, it certainly comes out in her book. So uh, at that point in time, you're cruising along mm -hmm. uh, as a young mom, mm -hmm. you're married, uh, you're living in suburban uh, Massachusetts, kind of starting out on the American dream. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and life's about to change for you. That's true, and we're, we're missing one step because um, when All Things Dutch was growing really fast, we had to make a decision whether I would continue that and expand. I was offered a large loan from a bank. We didn't have the personal wealth to really back it up yet, so there were some decisions to may be made. And because I really wanted to be a mom, um, we made the choice to sell All Things Dutch, which is still in existence today. Really proud of that. That's great. And I started a new company, an, mm -hmm. an executive search firm for myself. So I, it was very easy to combine that with uh, with children, being a mom. So in that regard, yes, I was on to the next venture sure. and was married and had uh, two children. At, at that point, they were one and three, sure. or almost one and three. And I, I'm sure you're alluding to what the point of the book is well, I yeah. was faced with a, ma a really a big medical trauma. I right. had a massive brain bleed. Right. Right. And and leading up to that, to, to this brain brain bleed, to say it was a brain bleed, Polixani, mm -hmm. is, is an understatement uh, I, in terms yeah, of I what agree. I think I used to understand a brain mm -hmm. bleed to be. A brain bleed to me might mean somebody had a concussion. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That'd be, mm -hmm. right? Wouldn't or that be fair? I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Astrid, yours was much different and much more serious than a concussion. Can you describe a little bit about what medically was going on with you at that time? Yeah, I actually would be honored to because there's very little uh, uh, to talk about this in the regular communities and people really should know more. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to do a lot more about awareness for uh, brain bleeds. And so that's a hemorrhagic stroke. And people often confuse it with the word stroke, but it's really not a stroke. A stroke is really a, a blood cloth and a hemorrhagic stroke is a bleed. And I usually describe it as a bulge in a garden hose that finally gives up and finally explodes. So it's one of your arteries. Uh, You can have an aneurysm. That's what typically the the cause of a brain bleed is. As you said, you can also have a subdural hematoma from falling on a, you know, the sidewalk and you have a, a fracture inside the skull so there can be some bleeding. But an actual brain bleed from an aneurysm, um, again, is like more like a bulge in a hose, mm-hmm. in a garden hose. Mm-hmm. In my case, it was actually even more complicated because I had what they call an AVM, which is a malformation in the, f- in the formation of the arteries in your head, in my case, in your head. It can also be in your heart. Um, if you have an AVM, which they think about one in 500 people have an AVM. There's no symptoms associated with AVMs, but you have a much higher risk of having an aneurysm Mm -hmm. uh, weakening in the wall is somewhere inside or on the outside of that AVM because the blood that has to rush through it simply has to work a lot harder because it's a malformation. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. So on top of that, my malformation, lucky me, was in the most difficult location. It was right on the tip of my brain stem, two inches deep into my brain. And it's called the circle of Willis, which is a, a formation. But in my case, it fused in two different places, making this really bad, you know, really bad situation. And inside this malformation, there had uh, an aneurysm had grown that in matter of time had indeed leaked and then pretty much exploded. God. And therefore I had a massive brain bleed where both my ventricles flooded. And um, most of the time people that have that kind of AVM and an aneurysm that then ruptures uh, actually pass away mm-hmm. r- right away. And those that survive have a very small chance of, of being okay. Mm-hmm. Right. I heard um, that Jim had told me that there's only a 2% chance? I was told by the physician that I saw that when you come out, I mean, you you have to look at the fact that 75% of the people that have this type of Mm -hmm. malformation and bleed pass pass out and die right away. Um, Pass right away. Sometimes, forgive me because my Dutch language, this is exactly where some of the words (laughs) slip in that may not uh, feel as comfortable to your listeners, but they're well intended. so the people that survived that original bleed, that initial bleed, uh, can then have vascular spasms that you know are like seizures mm-hmm. that um, cause a lot of irritation in the brain, and they may pass away from that. Um, or if they have surgery, those typ- typically those surgeries are really, really uh, dangerous and difficult because they have to go through brain tissue. Right. So people are usually disabled um, and have you know various issues. Now, having said that, though, technology has come so far. It has. And so, you know, mine truly was 20 years ago. You know, in a couple of weeks, it's my 20th anniversary. 
So this is why it is humbling to sit here and talk about it, because to me it almost feels like, who am I to talk about something that tw happened 20 years ago? But there's a lot of value I've, I've there, learned. There most certainly is. Not only is there value, um, and again, I want to remind everybody, we're speaking with Astrid Hendren, H-E-N-D-R-E-N. You can purchase her book, Surviving Lasts a Lifetime, uh, and you can purchase that on Amazon.com or go to Astrid's personal website, uh, which is AstridHendren.com. Um, there is tremendous value in talking about this, and and not only is there value in talking about it, but this is a very, very traumatic uh, uh, near-death experience. This is as close to death as you can possibly get. I'm fascinated by the fact that, um, uh, again, culturally, here we come with the intersection of uh, a new culture with mm -hmm. your dad at home. It's 1997, yep. and, and if I remember correctly from reading the Book, you had a massive headache, and in uh, in your home country, it's not common to call nine one one. There is, we didn't even have it yet. No, we we just didn't grow up with nine one one. And I think at that point, even telling my parents, should I go or should I, you know, go to the hospital myself, it was a no brainer. My dad said, no, I'll take you. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't. I thought it was uh, meningitis. Actually, that's okay. how bad the sure. headache was. So I was like, Dad, just drop me off. You know, he's gonna. They're gonna just do some tests. I'll call you in a couple hours. But part of what I think is really important, and I've spoken to so many families since, and have gotten so many responses about uh, um, the feelings of people that get triggered when they read the book, is that th this is not limited to having an aneurysm that ruptures. You know, although it's really, really scary, I should definitely say it's it's rare. It's not. Um, it's unusual to have an aneurysm. A lot of people have an aneurysm that never ruptures. So I want to make sure you listeners don't get scared as a result of, you know, me talking about this. But this is what happened to me. And there are two pieces that are really important with for my book, I feel. One is indeed some awareness, but much more important is that broader piece of we are all surviving something and we all have our own stories. And so mine happens to be a stroke but I try or a brain bleed but I try to really limit the focus on what it's not a it's not a story about my brain bleed it's mm. a story about being a parent having relationships changed having you know a whole new normal mm -hmm. as a as a survivor as an immigrant right and so it kind of comes full circle but there are a lot of pieces about my story that apply to others of course who go through a chapter of trauma. And and that's the beauty of, of this book. We were talking a little bit earlier, yes, Alex, we were, yeah. about, uh, about the ability to um, recognize that we all have our own trauma. And, right. Yeah. right? And, and it's different for everyone. You it's know, different one person, me. like you said, you know, what something is traumatic to you may not be for somebody else. Yeah. But like you said, we're all surviving something that's yeah. going on in our lives. And it's just a matter of how we cope mm. and how we go through you know the certain situations that we're in and i'm actually curious to know when you found out that this was happening to you and that you had you know two percent chance to live what was your reaction i said to the doctor well i hear you're the best in town you do your job and i'll do mine <laughs> and he started he did exactly that <laughs> he laughed <laughs> he laughed but I think he was really relieved. And he said, that sounds like a good plan. Mm -hmm. And he told me very specifically six weeks later at my follow-up when I got my 76 stitches out of my oh, head, my. Okay. he said, 
if it hadn't been for your attitude, you wouldn't have survived. And he wrote the foreword in my book, which I feel is more important than my whole book. What an incredible <laughs> honor. Right? Yeah, yeah. His Dr. Stieg, who's one of the top 10 doctors in the world. Wow. He offered, he, I didn't even ask, he offered to write the foreword when he heard, when he got wind of the, of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I was so touched because he wrote exactly that. And it was kind of a shock reading his foreword because I didn't realize he had been at, lo- at a loss. Mm-hmm. He said, I had no tools in my toolbox. <laughs> That's how he called it. And, you know, you basically you're a walking miracle. Right. So, so your, your, your odds were, were very low, very A, of low. surviving. Yep. And here we are in 1997. Uh, they're still low today. I mean, today I shouldn't say they're low, but, they, but it is a very grave medical condition mm-hmm. to have an AVM like this and to have it rupture. Um, but uh, in 1997, this was... Uh, this was a team of physicians looking at each other, having read your mm-hmm. book, and, and and saying, "What do we do? What yep. do we do with this case?" And um, you know, your your book does a, a really wonderful job of describing what it was like for you to be in that compromised state. And I use that obviously that's an understatement, but to be in the state that you were in at one point, slipping in and out of a coma, and what that experience was like for you as yeah. a patient. Uh, and you've used that to help inform physicians yeah. and, and nurses along the way. Can you describe what it was like for you during those days? Yeah, sure. And I, you're right. I do use that a lot because I think um, almost as a patient advocate now, realizing that I, I was there, I experienced a lot. I heard a lot. Um, you know, writing a book, you kind of have to put things in the right words. Not You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and you want to make sure everybody... Because coming from the Netherlands, I really do believe that uh, doctors are not gods and they don't have to be. They can make mistakes. Mm-hmm. They're allowed to. But that, that, that bedside manner and the way of uh, validating a patient or involving them in the team as part of the team, I think is really empowering. And I think what happened when I said to this doctor, you know, you do your job and, and I'll do mine, it really it really gave, it, it resonated for me, but also for him, it was like, okay, we both know what we're good at here. So, you know, my parents were in town and I had told my mom when she came in the hospital, I just need you to take care of my kids. And I knew she was gonna be a really, she's great grandma. Mm-hmm. She would take care of my kids and they were safe. And literally I blocked them out. I did not, I just blocked my two children out because if I had obsessed about them, it just wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. And I was in such dire shape slipping in and out of this, uh, um, you know, tunnel, which I describe in the book as this, um, what people write about, you know, that I've seen that tunnel, the light and the, the angel type of figures, my life passing. Um, and I, I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to, um, uh, make that story less important, but my lesson, what I learned going, being in that space being a very um, matter-of-fact Dutch girl, mm-hmm. to me it was informative because there was no pain in that beautiful tunnel, that beautiful space between clearly life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know, I knew later that I had been almost, you know, in in. I had almost died. So in your, in your, uh, certainly the audio portion to me was extremely emotional to listen to. You do a beautiful job of describing the event and it's clear to the listener that this is something that, um, 
that made an indelible impression upon you, it did. Um, to say the least. Um, and you describe even possibly a Jesus figure yeah. as you might have imagined Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, moving through that tunnel. Yeah, and, and to your point, I've really felt that I can help others um, who are in the last stages of life because when I talk to people, it seems to be very comforting for them to know and to have, have me describe what I saw and how I felt it. Because again, it was, imagine I was in the worst pain going into the hospital. One thing about a brain bleed is it is more pain than anybody can ever imagine. It's just so much worse. So for me, the realization that I was in that much pain, and yet when I was dying, there was no pain. Mm -hmm. It was all beautiful. It was this, I felt this, the word infinity really described it. It was just all space, all beautiful. So it felt very peaceful. So right. since that moment, I've never been afraid of death. I've never been afraid of the actual dying process. And I know Americans don't talk that open about death. In Holland, we talk about it much really? more. Okay. And personally, I'm very comfortable talking about it, but especially since this experience, because I feel so much comfort uh, in knowing that we, we can suffer when we are dying, but that moment close to dying is, is truly beautiful. Now, what did you see in that moment that really stuck with you? Um, the light, the beauty, the colors, the uh, peace, the fact that there was no pain. Wow. Mm. And, and what, what a wonderful... Um, uh, what a wonderful thing to know in your heart, in your soul, mm -hmm. that that, uh, that that having experienced that that sense of comfort, and as you said, to be able to share it with other people, so that they know mm -hmm. that this is a is a painless experience, and there is there is beauty and and light uh, beyond that. But uh, we are thrilled to say, and, and obviously uh, you recovered from this. Um, what what period of time were you hospitalized for after the? slipping in and out of the coma and having this massive head surgery. Well, I may not have told you this, Jim, yet, but that was actually part of this whole, like, what's the plan here? So the doctor told me, very specific, I could have read a page of the book today, it would have made more sense, but um, I said to him, um, he came to my bed and he said, you know, I, I've got to be honest with you, this is the most difficult surgery I've, I've ever done, and I'm going to have to fly people from all over the country to be part of the team. And they have to be well rested. So today is Thursday. We're going to operate Monday morning at 7 o'clock. Your brain has to really start absorbing some of the blood. And you need to, you'll have what they call symptoms of, uh, that's similar to encephalitis, a lot of pain. But we'll monitor you. And if anything bad happens, we'll do emergency surgery. Otherwise, Monday morning. Okay. And um, so... I just lost my train of thought. We were talking about the length of time you were in the hospital okay. after the so, in and out. So Dr. Steig said to me, worst case scenario, I go in, I can't get to the, you know, I can't go to, get to the aneurysm. We can't fix it. I sew you back up. We send you home. You have about three weeks to live. Mm. Best case scenario, I go in, I get to the aneurysm. I have the right clip. It fits. I put it in. I sew you back up as best as I can. And, um... We operate on Monday, you go home on Friday. Mm. Wow. And you know what? I did not discover until I wrote the book 
that that's why I went home on Friday. It's amazing. <laughs> and I did. I was actually asking a provocative question. It's it so blows true. me away yeah. that somebody could come out and there are pictures in the book and it shows your scar. Yeah. It shows the stitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was not a minor surgery, oh, yeah. to say the least. Um, so uh, that I think that's an important part of the story. It really is. Uh, now I know that. I mm-hmm. didn't realize that in those 20 years mm-hmm. or 18 years. But now I realize, and I talk about that in front of uh, caregivers, medical caregivers, and patients, and families of patients, because I think when you have a driven patient who is surviving some kind of trauma, Mm -hmm. they need to be given tools, and they need to be told, this is your job, and this is your goal. Mm -hmm. And we're also eager to, you know, we tiptoe a lot, and we try to, and we feel, we're all in shock when somebody has a medical emergency. But we should really start to remember that, in my case, it helped me survive, it helped me put my next, you know, the foot in front of the next foot, and Mm -hmm. just say, okay, you told me Friday, and I'm going to go home on Friday. And go go home you did. I (laughs) want to remind everybody, we're listening to Astrid Hendren. She's written a book, Survival uh, so, sorry, surviving lasts a lifetime, a parent's journey through medical trauma. And you were a mom, a young mom at that point in time. You go home. Yeah. And you are faced with very little support, to say the least. As an immigrant. As an immigrant with two young children and 97 stitches in your head. Yeah. And a massive headache, which is, to say the least. How do you how do you cope at that point? Well, um, I think it was just what I call a grit, grit, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, and determination. And is there, was there really any other choice, frankly? Because I came home because I wanted to go home. It wasn't, I mean, they said to me, you can go to a rehab center first. You know, I was walking on a walker at that time. I'd have really high-pitched voice because my vocal cords had been damaged. Mm-hmm. The pain was absolutely still number 10, just like when I went to the hospital. I had no paperwork to take home back then, and there's only little now, but back then, stroke survivors, literally heart attack survivors have a lot of paperwork to get home. You know, mm. you're going to be afraid of that. You're going to have this problem. You're going to, it's a lot, big package. Mm. For stroke, there was nothing, nothing. So it was really difficult to go home and have no guide to what to expect or how to feel. And you don't really, you get the impression very quick that when your life life has been saved by that kind of surgeon, you're kind of in the next next, next box, the next category, and sure. you get moved over. Right. So you can't really connect with them and say, oh, what do I do now? I'm really scared. Because truly the post-traumatic stress of having that kind of trauma, of having that kind of near-death experience right. comes a little later. Mm-hmm. And so when I came home, as an immigrant who didn't have family in this country, as a person who had just moved to a new community, so we didn't even know, we knew like two people, and my mm-hmm. kids were one and three, so they weren't even in schools yet where you right. could kind of, you know, hear it through the classroom. Um, I was unfortunately uh, in a, in a stuck in a terrible marriage. Yeah. Uh, at that point, our marriage had deteriorated. Um, my ex-husband is not a bad guy at all, but he's not a caretaker mm-hmm. and had a very complicated childhood. So it was just a... Uh, and, and again, part of the book tells too that trauma like this really complicates relationships. So if anything, it accentuates your own reality. My ex-husband's uh, mother had died when he was young. So it brings a lot of fears of the other people in the room or that are in your community uh, to the service. And so you become, uh, it's very easy to become isolated right. as a patient or as a survivor. 
Uh, for me, there was no other choice but to go take care of my kids. That was the only thing I had in mind when I was in that tunnel that, um, hey, my kids were one and three. They needed their mom. I was not in a good marriage. So if I died, where on earth would they go? And, and you actually bar- bargained with God for 50. I did. You bargained that just please let me get to 50 so I can see my young daughters get off to college. Be 18 and 20. And that was, I thought. And you are now okay. 51? And now I'm 51. Yeah. Congratulations. Wow. Thank that's you. Yeah. I published a book, yeah. Right. Because of that. That's really, that's how it all got started. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. And, and that's that's a story in and of itself. So, yeah. so here you are at home, tremendous pain, no support in a failing marriage with yeah. two beautiful children that you love dearly. Yeah. And that screams uh, out loud in the book about what a great mom. <laughs> Oh, so is. Well, more um, to kids, how beautiful they are. They're really they're, great kids. Abs- yeah. and, and so you you are now um, uh, grappling, I can only imagine, with a, with a range of emotions, but, but uh, something drives you to do something relatively unique for your children. Well, so part of that is I was also self-employed. We forgot to add that detail, sure. which means, you know, a lot of stroke survivors get some time off. Right. <laughs> I had none. Right. And so it was... Um, sink or swim, I was an executive search consultant, which most of the work you do on the phone. Mm-hmm. So a few weeks later, without any um, um, you know, insurance for this, I just had to get back on the phone and start my work. And that was part of just a determination of, okay, life must be back to normal. I mean, I'm working, I'm taking care of my two kids, you know, my husband uh, is back at work and I don't have anybody around to really fall back on. Mm-hmm. The, it, was, it was hard. It was just really uh, complicated, mm-hmm. and um, you just every day get up and um, try to focus on the on the good stuff in life. And my two children needed me that sure. much, sure. so it it's, you just keep going. But you had something you wanted to share with your children. That's right. Well, that was more of a coping strategy, okay. Jim. Because, Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was um, so. As I started to recover in terms of my head injury uh, or my head trauma, the pain didn't go away, which was really puzzling to me because I had promised it would go away. But then they started saying, well, it could take a couple of years and you know, it never did go wow. away. But okay. so that was a constant kind of reminder every day that I had nearly died. Mm-hmm. It was not something that I understand most cancer survivors don't have pain. I mean, it, it's a, it's a uh, fear, but it's a fear that is not triggered by symptoms in your body mm-hmm. all day, every day. Whereas mine, for you know five years, I couldn't really brush my hair because the whole head was just bleh, mm-hmm. pins and needles yeah. for years. Right. And um, you know I had like four different kinds of pain that I had to deal with. So as a result, the fear of dying kept coming up and it kept just, um, it kept me really occupied and it kind of, I think it was an obstacle of moving forward to exploring life of being you know thinking bigger for myself of going to other things i just kind of got stuck and it was really um it became a smaller world mm-hmm. for me right. constantly like what would happen if my girls are by themselves mm-hmm. so i started um i took a spiral note binder mm-hmm. one of those red ones from cbs and yeah. <laughs> wrote a bunch of buzzwords on the front page uh, i should have brought the book today it's actually really cool to it see it's now 20 years old yeah. you know and the page has like uh, childhood memories um you know um education um marriage you know friendships uh parenthood traveling you know just a bunch of buzzwords and i i wrote them down and then for a year and a half every night i would pick a word that just 
matched my mood. Mm-hmm. So if I was sad, I'd pick a word that was, you know, melancholic to me. Or if, if I was happy, I'd pick a word that really brought happy stories. Mm-hmm. And then I would just write kind of an essay about that word, about that key word. Mm-hmm. And um, the funny thing is, it was so therapeutic. I started to really look forward to every night just writing my essay because it almost was like I had it had all these different components to it. I could tell my kids what I wanted them to know, but I didn't I didn't say anything like I'm going to die or anything. Right, it was really, right. you know, just my stories, right. my life lessons. Sure. And um, a year and a half later, I felt I had written, even did like how to put on makeup, in my view. Because <laughs> I, I don't I like to I was going to ask you, I was like, what, what's one piece of advice that really, you know, you wanted to share with them? It's enough for education. Okay. My, I think my biggest one, well, education and relationships, but yeah. I think education, because I did not get to go to college at that point, mm-hmm. we had, um, I had also funded for my ex-husband to go get his MBA mm-hmm. again, uh, kind of as an immigrant, you know, the wife in Holland would be kind of on the back seat right, that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And I followed that very nicely. Mm-hmm. So I was the dutiful wife and, um, I think I really missed out. And so that was a really big part. I wanted to make sure that was on paper. And I tell you, a year and a half later, I had two binders written full, and I felt I had written everything I wanted to teach my kids as a mom. Mm-hmm. And it was, I remember the moment that one night I said, you know what? I just wrote it all down. It's like a, it's like a, um, you know, I left a heritage or something. Sure. Inheritance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Inheritance. Inheritance. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you did. Uh, I just want to remind you, if you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Astrid Hendren. Astrid has written a terrific book called Surviving Lasts a Lifetime, A Parent's Journey Through Medical Trauma. We are now in the year 1998. Uh, you are a trauma survivor, to say the least. And um, I don't know about you, Palaksani, but that is, um, in this day and age where we feel so connected mm. uh, by Facebook and, right. you know, I can text people and say, how are you doing? And and on your birthday, my gosh, if you're on Facebook, it's a big deal because <laughs> they post to your wall, right? Yes. Am I speaking to yeah, your generation? Absolutely. Oh my God, so much right now, yes. Yeah, so well, guess what? It's mine too. And, and you get so Since excited, it's radio, nobody you know? knows how old we are. So. Nobody sends letters anymore. You just uh, go on Facebook. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. So the comments. notion of Astrid sitting there and writing these mm-hmm. um, journal entries so to her daughters, uh, and you describe it as a way of coping, and I and I and I believe you <laughs> yeah. uh, to the core to the core on that. Uh, however, what a gift! What I a agree. gift! I have a question for you. Yeah. Why are they called the red letters? Is it because it was in a red notebook? So it's interesting you say that. I'm an artist as well. And for 20 years, I associated the thought of my brain bleed with the color red. Oh, So it it always was. So I bought a red notebook. (laughs) You know, I always wanted to make a painting that would show uh, what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And I could envision it. It was just this red splash yeah. in fact when i did the book i may have told you this story it's really funny actually when i had written the book and it was all done ready to go to publisher mm-hmm. i needed a cover well i had always had the cover picture in my head just for the way it's going to be right. so i bought the picture on one of those sites online because i saw just the one i wanted and you know what it was it was a band-aid with a piece of goss with blood coming through it oh my god oh there you go and it was perfect for me and i showed my husband my now husband sure. yeah. wonderful guy that's how this all came about and he's like, what? 
it looks like a murder. <laughs> and and he then took the picture off of his computer that he had taken of me, you know, on the beach on with the our beach. dog. Right. With your and he's like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's like, honey, you're a survivor. You want people to pick up this book because sure. it's pretty. <laughs> and it was complete uh, 360 for me or 180, whatever you say in America, for saying, um, wow, that's a completely different way of looking at it. And for me, it had always, until that cover, had been a really bloody, messy thing. Mm-hmm. And now it became this very beautiful uh, association because, you know, I look beautiful on that cover with my dog and the beach. So it was a really um, great way of turning the story. Wow. Yeah. So how did you see, because I'm sure things change, you know, once you had that traumatic experience. How did life change for you then? How did you view life in a different way? Um, People often ask that. And when you ask survivors of this kind of trauma, they'll tell you it's just not that simple. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I used to actually say sometime, and I don't want to sound ungrateful, but surviving is not everything it's made out to be. Mm -hmm. Because there is a lot of, uh, it's a heavy load. And, um, you know, right now I have had foot surgery. And so I've been sitting on the couch for three weeks. And it's interesting because it has really uh, confronted me with how much running away I have done from my pain. Wow. (laughs) Because right now I can't run away from my pain. (laughs) So part of the coping strategy all those years was you just go. You just go and and stay busy. So you don't really sit and think too much about it. Take your mind off of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's different people cope with stuff in a different way and that was just for me how I could handle just moving to the next chapter. And I, you know, I was really struck. Uh, This, this to me was the crux if you will, uh, for me, um, is that your perspective did change, and, and you describe that change as um, uh, a passion for live, a passion for living, which increased, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that manifests itself, at least in, as you as you as I've come to know you, I certainly see it and uh, play out, but. Um, Surviving the trauma doesn't cease. It's it's a truly a lifetime yeah. event, uh, and that survival changes your perspective. Yeah. And it also has changed the way that you look at others and the way that you have learned to empathize and, and what it means to be supportive. Can you describe how that's informed you? Yeah, I think the word perspective really comes up for me when you ask that, because the, the more people I meet that have gone through anything, whether it's cancer, whether it's a car accident, whether it's surviving, you know, dealing with MS or, or a parent losing a child, I think the perspective at any time is their perspective. So my story may sound, and that's why sometimes I'm shy about talking about story, because my story is n- no, no more important than your story mm-hmm. sitting in this chair. Right. It's just your perspective needs to honor, you need to honor your own story. And what what I find helpful is um, to not so much to compare stories, but when I talk to another person that's going through a tough time, it just it just gives me perspective that hey, I'm okay. Like sure, it was horrible then, but I'm breathing. I'm you know talking. I'm working, and I can pretty much do anything I want. When there's a lot of other people who are just um, either stuck in their surviving or actually have real disabilities to deal with. So as a result, I became more compassionate and empathetic to even people in my own family, like my mom, you know, and we, we all have issues with our mothers, but, <laughs> but it's just, wow, um, it, it helped a lot. Plus, I really felt more and more that I want to, to serve 
others, especially after I had written my uh, st my stories down, mm -hmm. but also when I uh, published a book. It was a, a very clear change in my life that it felt like it had purpose now, that I could do something with what had happened to me. Sure. And that's a big change. Sure, and that service has um, uh, both personally, but but also you've, you've had you have the chance to to speak to large groups. I do. And, I, that's and so much fun. Tell me, tell us about that. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. It it's uh, it's becoming a really a thing, and um, this is funny because I tell my twenty one year old this all the time. In high school, mm -hmm. I would pretty much blank out if I, it was my turn to read like two sentences or I, so I had to do oh yeah. my god it was horrible <laughs> and now it is my favorite thing to do wow. so I get to speak all the time in front of large crowds small crowds and I love it all if whether it's five people or you know 500 people I, I think a lot about it beforehand uh, I really think about what message I want to bring because they're different groups right and um, it it's just so cool to have people resonate with your message sure. or with an idea and uh, without going into you know too much religion or too much spirituality it's really it's just connecting connection and, yeah and i've never had that I, I think that's what i missed most in my whole chapter of surviving mm -hmm. is i was very disconnected uh, i was connected with my two children but i was very disconnected from the community you know, from my own husband, from my family that were in prior to your medical prior, event. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. After, because after. yeah, because okay. when I recovered and I kind of fell through the cracks coming I home, yep. I was very much with my two kids. Right. But I didn't have a support system. I didn't have you know the the team of doctors, which a lot of people still don't. Um, and I didn't have a family or Facebook at that time. People you know checking in with me. Right. So it was a very lonely chapter. So that really points to the fact that survival is not only a lifetime, but it's an evolution. It that is. it's always evolving. That, that you're uh, uh, continually learning about what place this, this event, your own mm -hmm. trauma, has yeah. in your life and how it might inform you and how it might inform others and your relationships. It's not a static thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like, hey, I, I made it. I'm good. Absolutely. And I think that's actually important to note and tell your listeners because my point of speaking in, at crowds, whatever crowd it is, is really to point out that we need the connection. Mm -hmm. We need the connection with the medical caregiver in the hospital. We need the connection with the medical caregiver out of the hospital. We need the connection with the family. We need the connection with the neighbors. We need the connection with as many people as you can. Right. And it's amazing how yeah. support can help you get through literally Absolutely. anything. And I think that's what you needed. And it's the validation of it too. Yes. So it's feeling that it's okay to be frustrated or it's okay to have oh, this pain because your head was just taken apart. You <laughs> know what I mean? Yeah. And I, when you're when you're driven uh, like I am, I think it's a double-edged sword because mm -hmm. you go, 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 right. but you also don't allow to validate your own suffering and your own isolation. Mm -hmm. So you kind of roll along. And, and with this speaking, I feel like um, I can open up about mm -hmm. that. And it's not, the story is really, when I speak, it's not about me. I rarely talk about what happened to me, except you need to give it context. But it's really about a community. And when I talk to in, at Rotary Clubs, for mm -hmm, example, mm -hmm. people really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I want to remind everybody, we are speaking to Astrid Hendren. She has written a terrific book, Surviving Lasts a Lifetime, A Parent's Journey Through Medical Trauma. With the few minutes that I have left, I do want to 
talk a little bit more of the backstory uh, in the story of how Astrid and I met. And uh, it's very personal to me. It's also very emotional to me. Um, my sister had an AVM, a sudden uh, rupture of an AVM. Uh, she knew about the AVM ahead of time. And uh, I have a dear friend, uh, Dave Fisher, who had uh, suffered a brain injury at one time. And I and I just reached out to him to see what, this is before her AVM had ruptured. Right. Um, it was at this point benign. They found it on a on just a routine scan. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a little bit of information from the neurological community. And so I reached out to my dear friend and he put me in touch with Ostrid. I did not know Ostrid. Ostrid quickly called my sister and developed a relationship. Which, I could see that. Which uh, <laughs> will last many years now. <laughs> it will last many, many years. See, and I'm on, the lucky one. I got the new friend. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I will tell you, we were very, very fortunate mm -hmm. because my sister's AVM did rupture oh, wow. suddenly. And Astrid uh, was, has been with my family by our side since then. Uh, I'm happy to say my sister's in recovery. Uh, but the amount of support, empathy that we got from Astrid was different than any type of support I can describe. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a little bit about this. I, I literally am at a loss for words, and that doesn't happen with me very <laughs> often. But I remember very distinctly calling Astrid in the hospital the night my sister's AVM ruptured and her reaction on the phone. And it was as if I was speaking to another sister. It was as mm -hmm. if I was speaking to a relative, and we had only known each other for a very short period of time. Um, and so that empathy, that ability to um, immediately Take the other person's perspective and make it your own. Mm -hmm. We are um, very, very blessed that you came into our lives. Um, we, I feel that way. Yeah. I asked Aww. if they would adopt me, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! But but I think it really speaks. It really speaks to the power of this book mm -hmm. and to the power of your story and the power of the courage of telling this story. I was blown away when I was listening to the audio portion that you actually are not somebody that was considering telling this story, that you're actually no. quite a private person. No, I was sitting in my attic for 18 years, and I was married uh, to my second husband for a bunch of years, I mean, eight years. And on my 50th birthday, I told him about this um, book, uh, these stories I had written that were sitting wow. in the attic, and he told me to go get them. And he's a weeper, so he started crying, and he said, you have to do something yes. with this. That's how it got started. Otherwise, it would have never come out. And, and I'm so glad. It is really great. It's been really, really empowering for me and um, humbling. Mm -hmm. I've never been one to be in the spotlight. And um, it's just been really, really great to be able to be a comfort to other people, to be a beacon of hope because I'm so far out mm -hmm. and as a survivor. And I have to say, everybody that I have met that has gone through a medical trauma that I've spoken to have understood that when the road moving forward and the road of recovery is really powerful when you reach out to others mm -hmm. because people get stuck in their you know, a misery and mm -hmm. people can get really uh, boggled down and how, how bad things are. But even when things are bad, to be able to tell others how you moved along and how they can move along, that they have the power to get better, that they, you know, can take charge in their own life. Well, again, her uh, she is Astrid Hendren. Her book is Surviving Lasts a Lifetime. <laughs> I promise I'll get that right. I've, I've, I've actually read it twice and listened to it twice, so that's pretty scary. I can't remember. Uh, you can get it at Amazon.com or Astrid Hendren. 
www.thinkingfaith.com. I am Jim Derrick. I want to say thanks very much for listening. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It was great.